Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Personally, being the first African-American, that really went to the core of what I believe libraries can be because people who looked like me, African-Americans were forbidden by law to read and literacy was denied in many cases. People who taught slaves to read were subject to punishment. And so that was something that made me as a African-American librarian very proud and, and humbled that I would be chosen. That was Dr. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, the first woman and the first African-American to hold that position. As the head of what's been called America's Library, She's bringing this grand institution, which started in 1800, boldly into the 21st century. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Since 2016, Dr. Hayden has presided over the Library of Congress and its collection of 171 million items. Before being appointed to the job by President Obama, she served as CEO of the Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, a member of the National Museum and Library Services Board, and Deputy Commissioner and Chief Librarian of the Chicago Public Library. One of her initiatives at the Library of Congress is called Of the People, widening the path. It is to connect the National Library more deeply with Black, Hispanic, Indigenous, and other underrepresented communities. Listen and learn why Dr. Carla Hayden is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm here today with Dr. Carla Hayden, the Librarian of Congress. 
When people think of the Library of Congress, they think of a magnificent building, and it is truly one of the most magnificent buildings in Washington. But Dr. Hayden, what does the Librarian of Congress do? Well, thank you for that, because people might not realize that the Library of Congress is the National Library for the United States. And the beautiful building that you described, the Thomas Jefferson Building, was completed in 1897. It's been called one of the most beautiful buildings in the Capitol complex. There are two other buildings that the Library of Congress is part of right there, the John Adams Building and the James Madison Building. So those three buildings form the basic complex. And the Librarian of Congress is not only responsible for coordinating the collections and the services that those collections provide to the public, but also services directly to Congress. So the Librarian of Congress is that person who makes sure that Congress gets the objective research services that are performed by a unit called CRS, Congressional Research Service. We call them our special forces. They provide 24-7 direct research and reference to members of Congress and their staff. And then the Librarian of Congress has to make sure that the copyright office that manages and provides policy to Congress is functioning so that creativity can continue and creators can be compensated. And then the library for the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. And then there's a Packard Center. So the Librarian of Congress has her hands full. (laughs) And it's a wonderful position, though, because I'm a career librarian. And so for for me, it, it really is something. Well, and it's a multifaceted job. You know, you mentioned uh, CRS, and I remember when I was working on the Hill in my younger years, it was the greatest gift to have to be able to get in touch with CRS for a legislative history or just any kind of critical information to the functioning of Congress. It's fantastic. And as long as Congress, oh, and I have to, I'm so excited because this is a part that people might not realize that. These uh, experts in just about every field are available whenever Congress is in session. And so they are in contact directly when you see Congress in session or you know about it. We have staff members who are working directly on any bills or anything that's uh, happening. Well, they're true experts. There's no doubt about it. Now, Is it true that the library has a copy of every book ever published in the United States? And I made that mistake, (laughs) even as a career librarian. And what the Library of Congress does have is access to materials that are part of the copyright system, the deposit system. So things that are coming in, uh, and that includes not only books, but uh, music, wallpaper, anything that's copyrighted. And the Library of Congress selects materials to add to the collection. And so every day, about every working day, about 20,000 items are available for the library staff members 
to select from. And of that 20,000 items coming in for copyright deposit, the library usually selects between 12 to 15,000 items to add to the collection. Every day? Every working day. And that's um, quite an enterprise because you think about the copyright process that includes, as I mentioned, music, uh, any song that you hear, all of these types of things that people want to make sure that their rights are protected as the creator of whatever it is, whatever format, goes through the copyright system. Just amazing. Now, there are some surprising items in the collection of the library. There are also some extraordinary items. Can you just give us a hint at some of that? 171 million items, 836 miles of shelving. So if you went from Washington, D.C. to, and we measured it out to about Davenport, Iowa, that's the shelving that the library has. And included on those shelves are the papers of 23 presidents from George Washington to Calvin Coolidge, the papers of 36 Supreme Court justices, including Sandra Day O'Connor and most recently um, Justice Ginsburg. Also, though, interesting things in those papers, for instance, Thomas Jefferson's recipe for macaroni and cheese. And we've started a series called Cooking with History because the Library of Congress has the largest collection of cookbooks, one of my personal favorites. But then the library also has film, recordings, also hair, and that is H-A-I-R. Please explain. (laughs) Four pieces of Thomas Jefferson's hair, a lock of Beethoven's hair, and that gets you into the music scores of Mozart in his own hand manuscript, Leonard Bernstein's collection. When we showed a a group of young people from Baltimore, the Baltimore Museum of Art came over to do a project. What they loved about the Leonard Bernstein collection was his report card when he was in uh, grammar school because he got C's. And so (laughs) for them, that meant, wow, here's a famous person, but they got C's. (laughs) And that's what humanizes some of these collections that you see Carl Sagan's drawing uh, when he was 12 of what a space explorer might look like. And you see Jonathan Larson calculation, his calculation for Seasons of Love. So whenever you hear that song, we have that on note paper. So these are some of the things. So we have objects that people might not realize as well. The largest collection of a musical instrument in the world of flutes. Really? 1,500 flutes. Yes, it was great collection of and so you have a collect of a flute that is wood and a flute that's ivory and all of these flutes from different uh, cultures as well and different times. And the collection, the general collection, over half of the materials are in languages other than English. And the Library of Congress collects in 470 languages. And how much of this can be seen by the general public when they visit the library? Quite a bit, but what we're working on is to make sure that there is, for the first time, and this is going to open in about a year or so, a treasures gallery. So we can rotate 
the treasures. And that you can see there will be things that will be on permanent display, like one of the three Gutenberg Bibles Mm -hmm. in the world. And the other two and on vellum are at the Bibliothèque Nationale and the British Library. And the Library of Congress has one. So those are the things that people will see uh, whenever they come. And the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets the night he was assassinated. The Library of Congress has those. And then we'll be able to rotate with this treasures gallery based on what's going on in the world or anniversaries and just pull from those materials and have them on display. So we're very excited about that. Oh, that's fantastic. Now let's hear a little bit about you. You grew up in Queens, New York. Tell us a little bit about your childhood um, and what planted the seeds of becoming the future Librarian of Congress. After all, it would be a president of the United States who would appoint you and the Congress of the United States who would confirm you. Where did all that come from? And I have, I'm smiling because when I think about the fact that I was born in Tallahassee, Florida, because my dad was uh, recruited to start the string department at Florida A&M, a historically black college. And my mom was his accompanist and a gifted pianist in her own right. Um, and by the time I was 12, we all realized I didn't have the gifts that they did. <laughs> but I had always um, been read to and had grown up loving words and reading. And so it was wonderful for me when I found the profession of librarianship that could combine my love of reading and exploring through books with serving and being part of exposing these things to other people and sharing them. So our family came from Illinois, actually, Springfield, Illinois, my dad's family in Southern Illinois, and my mom's family moved from Arkansas up to Champaign, Illinois. And they went to school in a little town, Decatur, Illinois, Millican University, and all that. So we moved to New York when my dad uh, got the blues, not the blues bug, but actually the, the jazz bug with Cannonball Adderley, who was down there. People might have heard of him, jazz musician. And that's when we moved to Queens and New York. And that scene, there's a small branch library from right across from PS96. And that's when I really discovered the joy of just going in and roaming the shelves. I also found out about library finds. <laughs> As my mom always reminds me. So it was a good uh, synergy there. So as a, a young girl, you fell in love with a library that was close to your school. I love that. So you were the first woman, the first African-American woman to be librarian of Congress. You're a woman of firsts. Why were these two firsts so important, do you think? Being the first woman uh, since 1802 and the 14th Librarian of Congress in a profession that has been uh, classified as one of the four feminized professions, where 85 to 90 percent of the workforce is female and the top management of the institutions might not reflect that, was very significant for 
librarians and librarianship to have a woman be the head of the Library of Congress. Personally, being the first African-American, that really went to the core of what I believe libraries can be because people who looked like me, African-Americans were forbidden by law to read and literacy was denied in many cases. People who taught slaves to read were subject to punishment. And so that was something that made me as a African-American librarian very proud and, and humbled that I would be chosen. Well, I know we were all excited uh, when President Obama appointed you to the position. It was such an incredible first. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Now, you're talking about um, some of the benefits of uh, what that represented. And when you were in Baltimore, uh, leading one of the great libraries there, you made sure that diverse groups in the city had access to the library services. What were some of those efforts that you made that were so crucial? One of the initial things that we made sure that we did was provide internet access and training and access in neighborhoods. Some of the kids in the neighborhood libraries didn't even realize that they were on high speed (laughs) computers and all of these things. They just knew that they had the same access as one little girl. I'll never forget that when we first started putting in the equipment. She was looking at a website that she kind of, you could tell with her little friend, she was about 10, was not really anxious for the librarian to see. And I went over, of course, and looked, because um, I'm a children's librarian still at heart, and there was Barbie, the doll, dressed in leather on a motorcycle. And this, and I said, oh, Barbie's come a long way. Because uh, I had one of the first Barbie dolls. And I said, well, how did you find out about this? What is this? She said, well, I went to a camp with all these girls last summer. And they talked about the Barbie website. And now I can get it. I know the librarian doesn't like it, but I can get it. And I thought, now, see, this is, this is equity in another way. 
that this young girl can talk about the Barbie website with anybody. That's true. (laughs) And it's not just all of the other things. It's just the opportunity to be and look at whatever you want. And so we kept doing those uh, things. And the Pratt Library in Baltimore is continuing to provide access in different ways. They just opened something called the Library of Things. So teenagers can check out the latest hotspots and different things that they can use in tablets at home. Interesting. So as we think about the equity aspect of virtual learning and the digital realm, we have to think about access. It's a really good point, particularly one that we're learning so well in this uh, COVID age. So speaking about digital and technological advances. What are you doing to bring the Library of Congress into the 21st century? After all, it was established in 1800. With the recent uh, year, we were already working on, and uh, for the first time ever, a digital strategy and where we were going to go. And that was, of course, accelerated like so many other institutions and organizations during the pandemic. And so the digitizing of materials, 61 million items are digitized now and available. The Rosa Parks papers, for instance, we just finished digitizing those 23 presidential collections. And we are making sure that we engage people. For instance, we have a transcribing program and that really took off during the pandemic. More people were able to help us transcribe manuscripts and put them up. So these types of things uh, allowed us to reach out to more people during this time and virtually than we could have just in person. So we have a a page on a website called Engage. So you can push on teachers, lesson plans. And that's something that really was important because a lot of teachers had to switch the virtual learning very quickly. And we have the lesson plans based on our collections. And then we have things for families because a lot of caregivers, parents were also challenged with activity. So that cooking with history became very popular. Rosa Parks has a peanut butter pancake recipe that's very popular in her own hand. (laughs) So we did things like that. You could take a nature walk with Walt Whitman build a lighthouse. So making sure that we mine our collections and make them accessible and usable for people. We have the world's largest collection of comic books. So we make sure that when things are happening that relate to the comic world, we put up things. And Dave Pilkey, I don't know if some of your listeners might know, but he is one of the most popular children's authors, Captain Underpants and Dogman. We have engaged him and he actually does workshops for kids on how to draw your own comic. And Jason Reynolds, our youth ambassador, encourages middle schoolers and teenagers to share their stories and grab a mic. So more interactive programming. So some of this is illustrative, too, of what you've done to make the library more accessible during this pandemic when we've all had to pivot. Yes. I read recently where you're creating a collection documenting the pandemic. Is that true? Yes. And we are partnering with the Smithsonian Institution. We are making sure that we help 
some of the people who are also trying to document the materials. It started this summer with some of the Black Lives Matter interactions and engagements. You may recall that there was a fence that had a lot of materials on it. And so the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian helped the people who were preserving those things to catalog them. And we have added some of the materials to our collections in the Smithsonian as well. Because what you really need to think about when you're looking at this, and this is an exciting part of being an archivist or librarian, what would an Annette Gordon-Reed, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Michael Blashloss, what would they need to look at 50 years from now? or 100 years from now, if they were going to write about this time. Yeah, that's it's something to really think about. And you have to be a visionary in many ways to see how things today, uh, what things of today will be so important to document history tomorrow. And it helps to think about that in terms of what are people doing research on women's suffrage. The Librarian of Congress was a contemporary of Susan B. Anthony. And Mr. Spockford, and he convinced her that she should give her papers to the Library of Congress. And that started a women's suffrage and women's history lane for the Library of Congress. And with this anniversary, it must be something that was uh, consulted significantly. Quite a bit. I know you also have your current initiative is on, it's called Of the People, Widening the Path. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That project grew out of a consideration of the fact that libraries and museums have an important role to provide context to history and needed to broaden how those voices are brought into our collections. And so the Andrew Mellon Foundation, led by Elizabeth Alexander, gave the Library of Congress an opportunity or an initiative, a four-year initiative, to make sure that we connect more deeply with the Black, Hispanic, Indigenous, and other communities of color. And it has three pieces. Our Folk Life Center will support, and this is by giving grants to diverse communities and help them document their own communities. There's also a digital futures program, because there are so many things going on with the use of technology and new digital approaches in communities. And so that will be an aspect. And then one that's dear to my heart, paid internships and fellowships. Ah, paid. That's so wonderful. Yes, paid. Yes. Uh, For students attending HBCUs and other Hispanic serving institutions, tribal colleges and universities institutions that serve Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And this will allow the growing, basically, of future historians, archivists, and people who will be able to help mine the Library of Congress's collections, but also work with these other communities. Very exciting. Yeah, very, very exciting. Well, we're getting to that time, alas, uh, because I've enjoyed this so much. But we always like to ask our guests what gives them hope, particularly in these times. And since we're talking to America's librarian, 
Let me ask you, what are you reading that gives you hope right now? I'm actually rereading John Meacham's book, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. This telling of John Lewis and his journey includes the fact that he was inspired and he talks about how he was inspired by Rosa Parks. And I mentioned that we have our collection. We have an online exhibit about her. And I've been so inspired by her quiet strength. And also the fact that there are women throughout this story that he gives credit to, including one of my favorites, uh, who was there on Bloody Sunday. Mm hmm. Amelia Boyton, and they said she was tall and regal with a perpetual smile and yet a manner of quiet defiance. And so reading and rereading about the people who were involved with that effort, as well as the young people, that gives me hope as well. So I'm reading Jason Reynolds, our youth ambassador, and of course, Amanda Gorman, the youth poet laureate. Because that's where the hope really lies. You think John Lewis, remember he was a student in, in his early 20s when he started on his road. So that's, I'm rereading it and it does give me hope. Well, that's a wonderful way to end, recognizing John Lewis and the youth who means so much and can articulate so well where we need to go. So thank you so much, Dr. Carla Hayden. This has been such a fabulous many moments to spend with you. I know our listeners have been fascinated, and I hope that once we all get to travel again, that the Library of Congress will be on the stop of many people coming to their nation's capital. So I thank you. I thank you for all you do. I thank you for being with us, our Librarian of Congress. Thank you. Dr. Carla Hayden is such an inspiring woman of firsts. Here are three things that stuck with me from today's conversation. First, I had no idea what incredible treasures the Library of Congress has collected. Everything from Leonard Bernstein's report card to the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets when he was assassinated to Rosa Parks' personal papers and the public will be able to see many of these items when the Library of Congress puts on a rotating display starting next year. Second, representation matters. As the first woman and the first African-American person to hold the position of Librarian of Congress, Dr. Hayden has carved a path for others to follow. Finally, as Dr. Hayden tells us, Libraries are critical providers of access and equity for all people and all communities. And at critical times in our country, during a pandemic or during moments like Black Lives Matter, libraries can provide the context and resources to help us move forward together. Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 